0: Since 2000, the Dr Charles Perkins Oration and Prize, hosted by the University of Sydney, has provided a distinguished platform for the discussion of race relations in Australia. The event has allowed for injustices and inequalities experienced by First Nations people to be brought to the attention of the broader Australian public, reflecting what was achieved in 1965 when Charles Perkins led a bus tour across New South Wales known as the Freedom Rides. This year's oration was delivered by GetUp CEO Larissa Baldwin. She used her keynote address to outline the importance of dealing with the climate crisis through an Indigenous worldview. She also aimed to highlight the need for First Nations people to articulate the changes they want to see following the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Let's hear from Larissa Baldwin now.
1: Jinguwala everyone, my name is Larissa Baldwin Roberts, and I'm a Widjwa Waibwa woman from the Bundjalung Nations. I want to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation and the custodians of the land that we meet on today, and pay respect to Elders past and present. I want to thank Uncle Chicka Madden for that warm welcome to country today. Sovereignty was never seated in this country, it is and always will be Aboriginal land. I also want to pay respects to the Perkins family, um, including his children, Hetty, Rachel and Adam, and thank you for this space, um, and inviting me to give the Dr. Charles Perkins Oration today. Charlie was born in the aftermath of the frontier wars and extreme violence that our people faced when we were being forced onto missions. For his generation, survival was an ongoing fight. In many cases, the violence of invasion was still a living memory. Charlie is remembered as a freedom fighter, when assimilation and segregation was widely practiced in this country. It is in the face of that he stood up against racism, called out hypocrisy and woke this nation up. And that was the catalyst for substantive change in this country. The reckoning against racism and segregation in the US made waves here. Everyday people supported and were inspired by the civil rights movement over there. And it was Charlie and many others who spoke out and held the mirror up and forced this country to confront its own racism and subjugation of First Nations people. This is Charlie's legacy for us, and I'm so honoured to be here today. So much of my life and work has been inspired by Charlie and my old people. They were a special generation of grassroots movement builders. So much of what we do as Aboriginal activists is standing on the shoulders of giants, and Charlie is one of those people for me. But their legacy is not a history lesson, but a call to action to continue the fight until we've achieved real self-determination and justice in this country. We've just lived through some of the biggest crises in modern history all of which came in really quick succession. Throughout the bushfires, droughts and floods and pandemic, the Morrison government left too many people behind to fend for themselves. It's understandable that so many people are relieved to see a change in government. The Albanese government has shown a commitment to change things and an ability to deliver on their promises, but we cannot take that as an invitation to be complacent. We are entering what could be a transformative decade for First Nations rights and climate action. And my biggest fear is that we'll squander this moment that will spend too much time appealing to government and not do the necessary work persuading the rest of the country of a better future that was within our grasp. Charlie taught us that we have to articulate the change that we want to see. Governments won't save us, governments only do what's popular. And my analysis comes out of decades of winbacks to our organisations, when we win and how we lose ground. I think we tried to make our organisations look too much like government in order to appeal to them. We've changed how we talk about ourselves in the aftermath of the intervention. So much of our advocacy leads with how we're being hurt and explaining that we are not the problem. It makes sense. If the government can understand how much we are hurting, then maybe they'll do something to fix it. The reality is there is little to no political will to do that because there is no demand for the majority of voters to do that. Good campaigns don't say what's popular. They make popular what needs to be said. And that is our challenge. And in that truth, that is the only way we have ever won. My political education comes from going up in a situation where I personally understood how much power governments can have over you. I grew up in Housing Commission in Lismore. I was raised by a single mother and we lived in a big blue fibre house with garbage bags taped to big holes in the wall. My younger brother would throw seizures and fall straight through to the outside. We didn't complain ever and no one had more money than us and we were too worried that someone would call the welfare and that we'd get taken away to complain anyways. My dad used to say to me, you're really privileged to know who you are. And I didn't get that. It confused me and it annoyed me. We were poor. It wasn't until I moved away from home that I met young mob whose family were removed from country that I understood the privilege of knowing my culture, my country and my history. The NT intervention and in Palm Island rights set me on a course into activism. I didn't recognise what the media was saying about Aboriginal communities as being true to my family or to my community. And I just felt like the whole country was lying, police and politicians included. I'd recently moved to Brisbane and I'd started going to protests. I found direction from the mob, from the Brisbane blacks, and so many staunch elders like Uncle Sam Watson and Uncle Ross Watson. I saw the incredible power in their activism and truth-telling, and I was looking for a place to connect to people. I found people who seen the world the way I did, and they became like family to me. Protesting outside of Roma Street, police headquarters, I felt really unsafe. At that time, the police union was threatened to strike if there was an investigation into the murder of Dumagee in Palm Island. I was so inspired by the work and bravery of the older activists and what they were doing, and it gave me the courage to stand up. It was this influence, as well as the stories from my old people and my dad, that really inspired me. Growing up, my cousins and I would ride our bikes to the historical society in Susama because it had air conditioning, and we'd type Roberts into the catalogue and scroll right back until our grandfather's names come up. We would see all the letters that they wrote to the local paper, telling them that they wanted to smash the Aboriginal Protection Board, writing letters to the families in Lismore. I remember reading stuff from Uncle Frank Robert saying, how can you call yourself Christians if this is how you treat people? I was born into a family of truth-tellers, resistance and protesters, part of our history and community. My grandparents walked off Aboriginal-controlled missions in the 1930s to our own reserve called Kaboui. For my family, Kaboui Walk-Off was about the violence that they experienced. It was about protecting our community. In our language, kabawi means a place of full and plenty. They didn't have much, but they have each other. Life at Kabawi was hard. Their homes had dirt floors, which they swept every day. In those days, the Council put up a tin fence around the reserve so that white people couldn't see the eyesore of Aboriginals living there. The walk-off movement was a refusal of the control that governments had over us. It was about having greater control over our lives. This kind of community campaigning has been in my family for generations. Dad would tell me stories about moving here to Sydney when he was a teenager. He was working for the factories to send money back home to Lismore. The stories of the protest movements in the 50s and 60s, fighting for land rights, captured my imagination. Dad met Charlie at this time and he would tell me a lot about him and others and the vision that they spoke with, all the things that they were going to do and that they were going to change and all the things that they needed to build. None of these things made me want to be a campaigner, but it did tell me who I was as a young Aboriginal woman. I got dragged into campaigning and organising and advocacy when I was a teenager. My elders started the Nyandi Aboriginal Health Council, and we were going to communities to work out what they needed, and we were going to tell the government that their policies don't work for us. My auntie told my other auntie that I could use a laptop, and so that was it. I was going. I wasn't asked. I travelled all throughout northern New South Wales to multi-day meetings, travelling to communities. Mob would come and talk about the issues that they faced. I would take all the notes, send copies to our black organisations, to the New South Wales Health Service and to ministers. People would raise things like incarceration for not having a licence, there was no public or hospital transport, you couldn't get taxis in Aboriginal communities because they wouldn't go there, so they had no choice but to drive family members to dialysis, and they felt like they were being targeted by the police. They talked about how people were getting sick because there wasn't proper sanitation, and this was in the early 2000s. I quickly gained an understanding of systemic inequality that existed for First Nations people. One day, one of my old aunties was sick and she rang me up and said, bub, I need you to go to this meeting in town and just tell them about our meetings. It's really important. I go in there and there are a couple of deans from universities, state and federal ministers, and I'm a teenager wearing singlets and board shorts and thongs. My auntie called me after and she said, what happened? I told them, I said, I told them everything. I told them what we needed. She asked me how they reacted. And I said, they just kind of looked at me stupid but when I told them if they didn't believe me, they can come to our next meeting, she just laughed, but they actually did come to our next meetings. So when people ask me how I got into this kind of work, it's sort of a question of nature or nurture. I come from a big activist family that has carried protests and change through generations. As Aboriginal activists, we're often called troublemakers. Charlie was called a troublemaker. We are those things, but we are them because we are committed to making change, better change for our communities. It's in our DNA. It's instilled in us to carry on the work of those who blazed those trails. If we respect the work of our old people that fought back against segregation and assimilation and refused to be controlled, then we have a responsibility to continue that fight. Climate change has already become one of the biggest challenges that our communities across this country are facing. Governments must be held accountable to the lack of inaction and lack of support we just had one of the largest natural disasters and most expensive disasters, and it happened in my hometown. My community has been devastated by the floods. My dad's house went under, as did a lot of other Aboriginal housing, and the scale of the disaster is a direct result of climate change. There are people that came out and said that it was a choice to live in these flood-prone places, but the reality is, first of all, that this is where we come from. My family are traditional owners here, and to hear people say that is infuriating, Disrespectful. And what those people don't realise is that this is a place where we've always lived. Everybody has a story of the 74 floods. Everywhere you go, there are blue markers in town, up high on the poles that indicate the flood levels. And if you live in town, you know what to do when it floods. This year's floods surpassed those markers by two metres. We were completely unprepared for something of that size. People were evacuating in the darkness of the early hours of the morning. They were told the levee is going to break and on an unprecedented level. The sheer pace of how fast that water moved made it so that even a town that is so experienced with dealing with flooding couldn't prepare and respond in time. By daybreak, people were stuck on the roofs of their houses. There was a full-scale evacuation happening, but it wasn't the emergency services. It was local people bringing their tinnies and coordinating on Facebook pages like Lismore Connections, putting together spreadsheets to help people organise because the emergency call centres were either down or had been inundated. In this moment, it had to be the locals who were the first responders, because they had the local knowledge to know where the streets were and where the houses were underwater. It would have been unsafe for professional rescuers to go in blind so quickly. The Koori Mail, our Aboriginal community-led newspaper that's been operating in town for 30 years, their building is right next to the river, and they went completely under. In the midst of all of this, they're still helping and leading the way with the community rebuilding. People were in boats for hours. My cousin Chris is the CEO of the Jolly Land Council, which is in the heart of the Richmond River, at cabbage tree island. He was in his boat for three days and that whole community went under. 180 people were displaced and they still don't know when they're going back. The community response was amazing, but there was a lot of resistance, particularly from our community. To listen to initially what the emergency services were saying, firstly, because we've never seen anything like this before, but also it was the only mob that could go in and get people out of houses because they don't trust... Other people telling them to move on, and there is a massive distrust with police from our community they didn 't have anywhere to go. there was no plan, and right now, there are still thousands of people living in tents and caravans in the front of their yards in Lismore. There are still uphanded moldy houses that have been moved by this force of water. there are pipes everywhere, there are parts of town that are totally abandoned, and there are places that are still locked off from people it 's utter devastation, and the reality is, how do you fix that? In Lismore, there are big health issues and mental health issues. People have been displaced, the services are overwhelmed and people can't access care. Labor has introduced a significant bill as their first bill in Parliament, but that's not enough and we need to see more action quicker. If we've learnt anything from Lismore, is that things are urgent and that there are so many effects for communities who are on the front lines of climate change. We need to talk about climate in a way that sees the big picture, the causes and the impacts, why there is an action and who profits and from that, trust the communities who understand the solutions to bring them forward. I've been talking about climate change for a long time, and I vividly remember learning about climate change in school and seeing the temperature maps and how temperatures would rise in different parts of Australia and how the sea levels would rise as well. I know the breadth of Aboriginal communities that were represented by those blobs, and I was looking at the map knowing that I'd visited some of those places as a young person. It became really apparent to me that climate change was going to mean the forced removal of people off country again. We already know the trauma of being removed from country. The most shocking thing to me was that this is mere decades away. This decade, we know that if we don't do anything, the more people are going to be removed. They're going to lose their connection to country in a massive way. We're going to lose so much of our culture and our language that is connected to those places. And it's not just us, it's going to be right across this country. What we've learned about climate change in school was really dominated by white science. No one was talking about climate change in the way that I wanted to talk about climate change. Everyone wanted to talk about biodiversity and reefs and tipping points. But I was always thinking about people, and that's why I cared about is the human impacts of climate change. I felt like there was this massive storm coming and no one else could see it. I wanted to create a space where we could talk about climate in a way that centered how it was going to impact people. And this was core to the reason that we founded SEED, to create space to have a conversation about climate that framed it as a human rights issue so that people would see that it was going to cause so much hurt uh, and pain for people. And while it's nice to talk about reefs and animals, we need to talk about how climate is already disproportionately affecting black communities. The climate movement had a lot of momentum in 2007. We thought if we elected someone who believes in climate change, that we'd solve it. The reality is we underestimated the mining corporation's ability to rip legislation out of our parliament. We saw a mining tax campaign that turned climate into a culture war. For the last decade, we've not only been fighting for people to take action, but also we've been fighting against incredible political forces with organised money and vested interests. They don't want to stop extracting, and they don't care about people in communities like Lismore or any other community, for that matter. The climate crisis and the way it's impacting our communities is a byproduct of colonisation, and that is the systemic root of this issue. Since the invasion, this country has had an extractive relationship. Mining corporations have been given free reign to profit off stolen land, and it's compromised our ability to look at what people need to survive. There are tipping points that once we get there, we'll have no control over. That's an individualistic system that will require unified collective response in order to change it. We are absolutely the best people to articulate this and to understand the scale of solutions, how we need to move together. If you want to understand how to deal with the climate crisis, then I believe that you need to situate yourself first within an Indigenous worldview. To do that, we need to be thinking about three generations behind you and three generations in front of you and make decisions for them, take the lessons from the old people. Governments can't do that, but the leadership from our communities can. Over the last decade, I've worked with communities across the NT from areas over 10 hours' drive from each other, all connected in a united fight to protect their land and water against fracking gas fields that would cover 70% of the Northern Territory's land mass in fracking gas fields. We're seeing this connection of communities happening all across this country where there is this reckoning happening with the relationship and the power imbalance that exists between communities and mining corporations. It wasn't until George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement happened that it forced us into looking at the global reckoning of systemic racism. That's when the traditional owners, whose significant global site, Jukun Gorge, uh, was blown up. They started to rally again uh, and tell the country, hang on a minute, what happened here was also racism." That's what blew the campaign for cultural heritage protection right open. And people were outraged that this was completely legal, that the legislation at a federal level still hadn't been implemented. This is exactly what Charlie did. There was a global movement for civil rights that was happening, and people were so outraged about what was happening in the US, and Charlie and his friends took that moment to stand up and say, you hypocrites. He held that mirror up, and this is what we need to do now. When Charlie stood up, he was called a troublemaker, and when our stories weren't being covered in the mainstream, he persisted. He knew that by building this momentum over time, eventually momentum builds into a moment that will have huge impact. It's this momentum that will continue to force our governments to interchange. Brought on by First Nations leadership through increased agitation of people on the streets, the Aboriginal Tent Embassy is the longest-running protest in history. On its 40th anniversary, people remember that Tony Abbott said that we should move on and that we don't have a reason to be protesting anymore. We were so outraged at the TAM embassy as a community that a politician could come out and say something like that, but his comments and the fact that he was able to say them is a testament to how our communities have been silenced by the intervention. People didn't know how bad things still were. The strategy behind how we campaign across everything is centred around breaking this silence that we needed to reinvigorate the ability for people to protest in this country. We needed to break the silence and the people needed to understand that it's not just a few hundred or maybe a few thousand activists that are coming to protest, but that everyone in this country wants to see change. From that meeting, embassies were set up all over this country. We wanted everyone to talk about the injustices that were happening in our communities again. And this year on January 26, we marked the 50th anniversary of the 10 embassy. A decade on for Tony Abbott's comments, And we've got more people turning out to Invasion Day and Survival Day protests than the official January 26th celebration. And that's because people actually want to confront the history, and we take the data to explain how systemic racism and colonisation is still impacting us today. This is a strategic movement for us to build support and to tell our truth. This is our community creating the opportunity for us to win. We've been building this momentum for years, and around the time Tony Abbott made those comments about the Tennessee, he also came out and said that living in a remote community was a lifestyle choice. Amidst the forced closures of remote communities where people were faced with being displaced from their home, families and culture, they were threatened by turning off the power and even bulldozing their communities. I knew that our communities had to, had to be the truth-tellers, and this was a call more broadly for assimilation and the forced removal of people from country. I remember getting in touch with young activists from the Brisbane Blacks and saying that we need to organise a protest against this. We decided to just keep protesting until we could get it into the media. Over a period of a few short weeks, our protest went from 20 to 30 people to hundreds of thousands of people, and we were shutting down cities across the country. This was one of those big turning points where we built community power that turned into political power. We leveraged our community power by building momentum, and we saw this happening during the Black Lives Matter movement. Protests are an integral part of our democracy here in Australia, with protests happening in remote communities right across the country. It's just regular people talking about what's happening, sharing our stories and our truth. How we harness all of this as community power for big-scale change is when community power meets critical moments of points of decision, whether it's an election or a referendum. It's not just about electing a government to do the things that we want them to do. It's about using our power to hold governments accountable. There are leaders in these communities who are driving change every day. One of the senior leaders I work with a lot is Aunty Naomi Wilfred, and we met in the initial days when we were working for Seed. She's a stalwart of looking after her community, and she believes her community, she knows her community, and how to transform that knowledge into power. She said to us after Kumanjai was shot that this wouldn't happen if the anti-intervention hadn't happened. Before the intervention, police couldn't have grabbed someone out of their home the way that Zachary Rolf did to Kumanjai. She remembers that before the intervention, they had more control and decision-making power. She said they would have known who the police were, And they wouldn't have allowed a white ex-military police officer who's never worked in a remote community to come inside the community. She equated that loss of control to the governments who haven't supported them in COVID, calling the government to shut down fly-in, fly-out workers. They were running out of essential workers. They were being denied the right to funerals and burial rights that couldn't be performed. In our communities across the country, when COVID happened, there was a total lack of government support. It was those communities that stood up to look after each other, putting up signs, translating, and using that frame of needing to protect our elders. They moved to action before anyone. Ani Nomi is one of the people in the community that leads the way. She's built countless programs and she was the one explaining to the community what COVID was. She was the first one in her community to get vaccinated and the one to explain people why they should get vaccinated. People like her are so important and are a testament to why community control works. She's the one who could do this because people didn't trust the health workers in the government after systemic years of failures. Come election time, Ani Nomi was going door to door telling people to get on the electoral roll. During the election, Ani Nomi made headlines calling out the government in their broken promises. She explained why her community and all across remote communities in the NT people feel frustrated by elections uh, being all talk and failing to deliver. She has this one quote uh, in the media, which said, we vote for them and we make them look pretty good upstairs, but we're down here and things look pretty ugly. Instead of letting politicians play politics and make empty promises, she said that's why our people were getting enrolled, so they can hold them to account on these things. The community made it clear what they wanted on action. Housing, a ceasefire, meaning no guns in remote communities, stopping fracking, ensuring essential needs are in their shop, and they didn't care whether the government could deliver them or not, but they weren't going to back down from their asks. I've done a lot of research into what works in organising and understanding how change happens in First Nations communities. The key ingredient to creating wide scale change for First Nations is people articulating what they want on a broad scale. We have to say what we want and we have to say what we don't want. The majority of the country is actually opened up to being persuaded, and we have to have that understanding that the most powerful messengers and truth tellers are ourselves. We spend a lot of time talking about the problem, but we don't give nearly enough time to talk about how it could be different and what's required, and that is what is required in this moment. All of the generations and fights of protest and resistance and persistence, this is what we've learned. We can see the decades of work. We have state and territory governments looking at treaties, we're looking at truth-telling commissions, cultural heritage protections, we're looking at representation of First Nations people right now. We should be talking about becoming a republic. These are the things that need to get moving. If Charlie was here, he would be telling us to all take this moment in, shaking us to make us understand that we're in a very unique once-in-a-lifetime moment, that these opportunities just don't come around. In a 67 referendum, communities and organisations mobilised and the country had to vote yes. From this, we spent decades growing our electoral power in communities so that we could build mo- on these moments, so that our votes were counted and that we'd have a voice in our democracy. There are still issues with voter suppression and barriers to present, that prevent First Nations people from having their vote. In the last 10 years, there has been wide-scale voter suppression, and it means if it's not fixed, there will be no mandate from our communities in any referendum. We cannot go to a vote on a referendum until it's fixed. It was less than a year ago that the Morrison government was ramming through racist voter ID laws that would see thousands of First Nations people taken off the electoral electromole, amidst other issues that already limit access. This government needs to invest in undoing the damages of the previous government because we can only look to expand our democracy get this referendum if everyone has equal access and the right to vote. We have this moment with a referendum on the table, and everyone has a role in it. When I stepped up into the role as CEO at GetUp, I spoke with a lot of my old people and elders. I wouldn't have stepped into this role without having a conversation at GetUp with Uncle Sam Watson. He asked me what I wanted to do with this, and he said, this is the largest political organisation in the country, and you're being offered the opportunity to take the resources without an agenda. You're able to set that agenda as a First Nations person. In taking up this role, I don't take that lightly. GetUp has the power of a million strong members and a base that we need to mobilise for this campaign. I have an agenda, and that agenda is to make sure that this movement, this moment, we take this moment to re-envision what the next decade looks like. This is why we have to look past the referendum, but focus on how we can transform into making change so much more possible. In campaigning, we call it the Overton window, a moment where something happens and it makes so much more possible. This is why we need to say not just yes, but yes and. In the 67 referendum, there was no no campaign. This time we're going to face a racist no campaign from people who don't want us to have more rights. This is why our campaigns need to be more than just yes. Whether you're talking about it to your neighbour at your kitchen table or to your family, we need it to be more than yes. We need to talk about why I'm voting and what the issues are we are fighting for and who we want to be as a nation. Everyone needs to be able to articulate what this moment is and what it means for them. Because some moments are too important to let governments decide them, and this is one of those moments. If you can lift Aboriginal people in this moment and recognise that the crises we face are not just here, not just climate, not just the issues with housing, guns in communities, over policing, deaths in custody, or health, if people can understand that the breadth and context of what we're talking about is freedom and what it's like to have control over our lives, then that is what is going to persuade the masses. We can combat a racist no campaign with this. There is a role for everyone in this campaign to take action with us and take a stand. I see my role as following the footsteps of elders and my old people and continuing the legacy they have left. I've had a hard year. This year I spent the final weeks with my dad um, before he passed away. We spoke about everything that he has achieved for his people and his community and he said that what he did was the promise that he made to his grandfather to keep looking after his community and he kept that commitment. Most importantly, we need people to see that this is not just a gift that the country is giving us. This is not a handout or a tick box exercise. Our communities are not going to get behind something that is just symbolic. We know that by expanding our democracy and seeing First Nations people with a seat at the table, that's a gift that we can give to the rest of the country. We are offering the country a gift at this referendum. Charlie Perkins said, my expectation of a good Australia is when white people would be proud to speak an Aboriginal language when they realise there is a wealth of Aboriginal culture and is there worth waiting for us all. And they have, all they have to do is to reach out and ask for it. What we're offering is a better future, not just for us, but for everyone. Thank you.
0: That's the 2022 Charles Perkins Memorial Oration hosted by the University of Sydney. The keynote address was delivered by GetUp CEO Larissa Baldwin. And a reminder, you can watch this year's Charles Perkins Memorial Oration on ABC iview.